but the first key changes that occur are that that like you're saying the neurophysiological effects and a simple way of describing that is that it's the a, a few things happen so one is we are able to increase the, the it's called a central drive the input into the musculature so the, the amount of signal going into the musculature uh, the drive is greater um, as we strength train versus if we're not strength trained so we're, we're telling the, the musculature to activate more versus previously then what we're also trying to do with that that really heavy stimulus is activate preferentially if you like or as best as possible optimize activation of that fast twitch capacity now the runners that are listening are probably quite familiar with endurance kind of slow twitch and then you know, fast twitch and possibly there's conflict there in in a mind that well actually i'm an endurance athlete i don't want to be fast twitch well there's a, a real advantage for doing and maybe we'll get to that that shortly of for doing a, a period of strength training um for endurance athletes for, for several reasons um, but to come back to the, the mechanisms and what's happening is that we start then to, with that heavy load and particularly with the intent of a, an explosive lift, is that uh, we maximize the, the activation of that fast twitch capacity. And then what comes as well is the synchrony of firing improves. So if you imagine you've got a, a pool or several pools of fast twitch units or muscle fibers in your muscle and you've got an increase in drive to activate them, that's great. But if they, you know, they fire sporadically, so one on the left fires and one on the right and then one in the middle, yeah. it produces some force. But imagine if it all were to fire together at yep. the same time, that the force output would be greater. So those are the kind of really three key things that, that can happen um, with that first adaptation to strength training. So we've got that neural change that will give a, a greater, or will give that, that muscle force output increase without any appreciable change in muscle size. Welcome to the Run Culture Podcast. My name is Dane Verway. I'm an experienced runner and running physiotherapist. I created this podcast not only so I had an excuse to talk running each and every week, something that I love to do, but more importantly, this podcast gives me the opportunity to interview fellow runners, friends and health professionals in a relaxed and easygoing format. This podcast is designed for the everyday runner, so we can all live, learn, grow and enjoy everything there is to running together. I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome back to episode 58 of the Run Culture Podcast. Today I have the privilege to be speaking to a rehab and conditioning specialist from the UK, Claire Minchell. Claire has been a part of 30 plus research papers, including a PhD, most of which were in strength and conditioning. Her website, www.getbacktosport.com, has many great blogs and courses about strength and conditioning. Claire also has personal experience, not just as a researcher and clinician, but on the other side of the fence as a successful power lifter and a patient, having had to, had to undergo two spinal injuries and surgeries. Welcome to the podcast, Claire. Thank you very much for inviting me. No worries, Claire. Um, it's a pleasure to have you on. And uh, 
Yeah, I just wanted to firstly start with asking you a question um, about strength training and what actually is strength training and what dosage is recommended when it comes to strength training. Because uh, what better person to ask than you who's um, had so much involvement with research as a clinician and then personally, um, uh, yeah, as a power lifter. <laughs> right, so we're getting stuck right in, into there, yeah. into the nitty gritty from the bat, off the bat. Yep. Uh, okay, so um, yeah, so strength is, uh, is, I think we're understanding it um, better now in uh, popular culture and in therapy and um, different um, facets of life, but still there's still a bit of misunderstanding about what strength actually represents. So often people think about strength synonymously with size. So um, you probably see it a lot with your patients when you're saying, you know, we need to strengthen the muscles around a joint, for example, and they go, oh, I don't want to look massive. I don't want to look like Arnold Schwarzenegger. And, you know, in actual fact, to, to get that size and that hypertrophy takes considerable effort, like really it's difficult. So that's a myth that we're continually dispelling. And, and um, so strength training is different to training for size, to training for endurance, for training for power. And this all comes under specificity, uh, which is, you know, it's applicable to any, anything that you do. You, you assign a specific goal and then determine what your specific goal is and then assign the training that goes along with that to achieve that specific goal. So strength or maximal strength, if we're being really pedantic, is the maximal contractile force that a muscle can exert in a single effort. Um, so that that's basically like if you're in the gym, what a, what a one rep max might be, what you can lift for a single effort. Um, or if we're measuring it from uh, an instrumented perspective in a, in a dynamometer setting, what is the, the maximal force output that muscle or muscle group can produce? And that is maximal strength. And the way in which we approach strength training is to, to get those optimal uh, adaptations so that we're, for example, minimizing redundancy of effort and um, being really honed in our approach, maximize that input-output equation, then we want to be lifting very heavy weights for very few repetitions. And that's quite scary for some people yeah. Yeah. <laughs> when approaching that. Um, a lot of people haven't done this before. Even habituated gym goers, you'll see them um, you know, lifting weights, but they might still be at a 12 or 10 repetitions. Usually it's a three sets of 10, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I love talking about <laughs> that, you know, where did it come from? And, I mean, you know, we do know, but but if we really want to hone that, that uh, specificity, if we want to maximize the strength gain, then it's actually around about three to five repetitions maximum in a set. So that is going to failure so that you can't lift anymore. The weight is so heavy obviously with correct form and it's safely done, but that weight rep is, is representative of something that's a challenge to lift six times. Yep. Um, and that's the failure point. So that's how we approach strength training optimally. Now you will get some strength gains doing 
novel things. So, you know, doing resistance training if you've never done it before, yep. so lifting anything. Yeah. Um, and you will get some strength gains as well. If you're doing that 10 to 12 reps, um, assuming you're going to failure, because that's another, another, another thing as well. Um, but it won't be as much as if you are lifting much, much heavier weights for fewer repetitions. And in actual fact, when we're looking at size gain and hypertrophy, it's the volume of, of effort, sorry, the volume of, of work that you're doing that determines that. So just because you're lifting very, very heavy, it doesn't mean that the size of the musculature is going to maximally grow. Actually, what we're trying to do is hone the, the, the stimulus to get you stronger, which is super important for a number of reasons, without um, growing the muscle the same by the same amount. Yep. Yep. That makes, if that makes sense. So with hypertrophy training, so getting the muscle bigger, how does that differ? So you do more, when you say more volume, um, would you do more more sets and, and more reps or? <clears throat> yeah, that's, that's a really good, good, um, good question actually, because typically when you look at their research papers that look at muscle size gain, so hypertrophy, so growing the, the cross-sectional area, if you like, of the musculature, then we see that those interventions are around about 8 to 12 reps max. So this is a way of determining intensity, which is super, super important when we're looking at any type of adaptation. We need to know how intensely the muscle is working or the muscle group is working, or indeed control how intensely that muscle group is working. And that's one way of determining it. And it's a really good way to give to your patients and your clients and you individually how to progress yourself without doing complex calculations so that repetitions maximum so what are you failing at so just to, to clarify that point so in the literature we see a lot of studies that usually employ an 8 to 12 rep max training um, stimulus for hypertrophy multiple sets now if you count up the number of repetitions performed that can be quite a lot within a, a single session and then over a period of uh, six four six eight twelve weeks training that that can add up to quite a lot so typically we thought that you know that's really um the optimal stimulus for hypertrophy however um there was a paper published just probably not even a month ago by a, a well-respected author in the field uh, comey who almost matched the the workload at the three to five rep max to an eight to twelve rep max um, so it's pretty similar. The, the aim was to investigate the question, what would be the strength and size gains if athletes or, or, or participants were to perform workload matched um, interventions or training programs at different intensities? So they had a three to five rep max group and an eight to 12 rep max group. And if you add up the number of reps, roughly at the end of the line, they're, they're similar um, and what they found was that the hypertrophic gains were, were similar. So that really underlines the, the fact it's the, the work done, the volume of work done, that's really the key determinant for the size gain. So another um, reassurance that if you're working three to five repetitions maximum and you're going for a strength program, you're really going to have to do a hell of a lot to try and grow the muscle yep. if that's your, your aim. So don't worry, you won't suddenly end up like Popeye <laughs> overnight. <laughs> so, yeah, that's so good. That's so good to understand. And then with um, if the muscle's not actually getting bigger, 
Um, uh, uh, then what are some of the changes that we see um, in the muscle? Because I've heard you speak about the neurophysiological effects of strength training. Um, and I think that's really interesting for um, some of the runners to, that listen to this podcast to understand that it's not necessarily that the muscle gets bigger that often causes the strength training, but there's also those um, uh, neurophysiological changes. Yeah, great. So what's the magic, isn't it? So there will be a little bit of, of adaptation in muscle size potentially. And actually for those people that haven't got um, a high volume of muscle tissue, you'll actually probably see a, almost like a shrinkage of the cross-sectional area as the 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 musculature increases in, in almost like an exchange potentially of fat mass or fat-free mass. And you kind of get a, a, a smaller uh, cross-sectional area as that, that muscle tissue almost tautens up the area, which I guess people refer to as toning, which I absolutely hate. But yeah, yeah <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Um, the, um, you might see, but in, in athletes, you might see a, a small change in muscle cross-sectional area. Mm -hmm. But the first key changes that occur are that that like you're saying the neurophysiological effects and a simple way of describing that is that it's the a, a few things happen so one is we are able to increase the the it's called a central drive the input into the musculature so this, the amount of signal going into the musculature uh the drive is greater um, as we strength train versus if we're not strength trained. So we're, we're telling the, the musculature to activate more versus previously. Then what we're also trying to do with that, that really heavy stimulus is activate preferentially, if you like, or as best as possible, optimize activation of that fast twitch capacity. Now, you, you runners that are listening yeah. are probably quite familiar with endurance, kind of slow twitch and then you know, fast twitch and possibly there's conflict there in, in the mind that, well, actually, I'm an endurance athlete. I don't want to be fast twitch. Well, there's a, a real advantage for doing, and maybe we'll get to that, that shortly, of for doing a, a period of strength training um, for endurance athletes for, for several reasons. Um, but to come back to the, the mechanisms and what's happening is that we start then to, with that heavy load, and particularly with the intent of an you know, explosive lift, is that uh, we maximize the, the activation of that fast twitch capacity. And then what comes as well is the synchrony of firing improves. So if you imagine you've got a, a pool or several pools of fast twitch units or, or muscle fibers in your muscle, and you've got an increase in drive to activate them, that's great. But if they, you know, if they fire sporadically, so one on the left fires and one on the right and then one yeah. in the middle, yeah. It produces some force, but imagine if it all were to fire together at yep. the same time, that the force output would be greater. So those are the kind of really three key things that, that can happen um, with that first adaptation to strength training. So we've got that neural change that will give a, a greater or will give that, that muscle force output increase without any appreciable change in muscle size. Yeah, yeah. And so we've um, endurance athletes and runners um, adding this heavy strength training um, what are some of the advantages so in the literature um, has it shown to 
um, improve performance um, or economy? Um, and uh, yeah, uh, what about um, injury rates? Yeah, so there's, there's quite a lot in that, that question there. And we're still yeah. investigating and still trying to get to grips. If we go to the injury uh, question first, we're still trying to understand that. Understanding injury risk and injury um, causation of injury is a really difficult things to do, thing to do because um, ideally we want to, to attribute causation. We need to set up studies that are prospective in design. So that means you set out now with a hypothesis. You conduct multiple um, measurements on your, your population and you randomly allocate a group of, let's say in this case, runners to an intervention that maybe does strength training and a group that doesn't do strength training, um, as an example. And to, you know, if you think about um, how often people get injured, it, it's, it, we need really, really large samples. <laughs> so yeah. that's, that's really difficult. I'm talking hundreds, uh, ideally, I think unless you've got populations that are, are rife with, with injury uh, and dependent on what injuries you're looking at as well. So it, it, logistically, they're a nightmare to, to set up and they require a lot of funding and people. And so that's why I think one of the reasons why we haven't answered that, that question. If we look at, for example, team sports, we've managed to get somewhere near with understanding some of the uh, associated factors with, with injury and, and neuromuscular performance. Uh, but it's very very difficult to attribute to, to one different dif, uh, one single thing. So if you were to take a measure of strength in, I don't know, 600 people at baseline, and then you're following them up, it's quite a, a thing to standardize and, <laughs> and do across time. So that that's the inherent challenge. If we think about uh, conceptually or, or in, in theoretically what makes a joint stable and thus unstable, you've got these... Um, you know, you've got the bones and you've got the ligaments and everything that, you know, kind of hold the joint together. Uh, but then you've got the muscle that, or the musculature that surrounds the joint. And I tend to refer to that as your biological scaffolding. So in theory, um, and as I said, some prospective studies in the team sports um, literature have, have alluded to this, this being potentially uh, influ influential as well. Um, the better performance of the, the musculature around the joint, the more stable it's going to be when you start to load it uh, and you start to load it dynamically and then we're adding perturbations in there that are unexpected. So from a strength perspective, um, if you, the way I like to describe strength is like a, a fuel tank. If you think um, of strength being representative of a fuel tank in a car, if the car is empty of, of fuel or it's running on, on empty, it's not going to go very far and it's not going to go very fast. Um, now, if you relate that to strength and think about performance, you think about stabilization, if that musculature around the joint is very weak, it's not going to be able to respond, be, be able to respond very forcefully to those, to that dynamic loading, which I said, in, in theoretically, conceptually, that might mean that potentially uh, fatigue-related effects might happen. The stabilization, because the stabilization of that joint isn't 
uh, optimal for long periods of endurance kind of activity. Um, and those sudden high forces that are, are placed through a joint that require a rapid and also a forceful contraction of the muscles around the joint. Um, if Again, if you're relatively weak, then the chances potentially of that not happening correctly yeah. uh, or being at increased risk, then you can imagine that that might be um, a risk factor. Yeah. So retrospectively, we've seen, so that's taking a population now and looking backwards um, at what their performance characteristics were. So we can see that weaker athletes um, tend to be at greater risk uh, of injury than stronger athletes, but that's on retrospective, so evidence basis. So it's quite a difficult one to answer. My, my opinion and my, my thoughts are it, it's got to play a role. Um, and if you look at the quality and quantity of life and falls risks and you know in all the populations, there's quite a body of evidence there as well. Yep. So it's just a, it's just a higher performing system that we're looking at in the, you know the, the athlete population. Yeah. So there's a, a question mark, but I'd say would be silly not to think that strength would was involved in, in injury uh, avoidance. Yeah. And then from a running from a performance perspective, again, think about that fuel tank. Um, and just let's just take a, a really simple example of standing up out of a chair. Yeah. And somebody who's very frail or weak standing up out of a chair might represent their maximal strength effort. So remember that maximal contractile force in a single contraction. If their fuel tank is empty, that task suddenly becomes hugely um, demanding. Yep. And their ability to do that on repeated times is limited or indeed impossible. Now, if you strengthen that individual or that individual gets stronger, then everything becomes that task because the body weight's the same and presuming you're not changing the task, it becomes relatively more submaximal, thus they're able to repeat it on multiple occasions. Yeah. Um, repeat it you know, um, consecutively, should I say. So if we apply that to sport performance or running performance, then it kind of makes sense then why some of the uh, the literature out there is reporting that strength training, if we think about, yeah, it's probably beneficial for um, uh, injury avoidance, uh, maybe acute periods of high intensity work, so where you're requiring a high force output, uh, maybe that's... Um, you know, some inclines, really steep inclines, or if you're a, a more of a, a sprint athlete, but also over a, a period of set period of time, running economy can improve. Yep. So something like, well, it's kind of a debate, but something like two to 8% yep. potentially of improvement in, in running economy. So the energy expenditure, if you like, over, over a set task is less. Or conversely, yep. potentially you can go further in a time trial. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so that, yeah. that's in a in a nutshell. That's I think that's what we're looking at from a from a, a running perspective, an endurance sport perspective. Yes, yeah. it's. it's I'm sorry. Oh, certainly. Like clinically, like I've seen um, an example of strength training, and I know it's only clinically, and it's only a case study of you know a few people here and there. Uh, but earlier this year, I've worked with a runner for the last three months, and. Um, through the COVID-19 period 
and we're, he's been really compliant with strength training and that was the one change he did with his running training mm-hmm. um, and I even debated after his 10k time trial where he did a two minute personal best so he ran he dropped from 37 minutes to 35 minutes um, wow. and I was like was there anything else like was there what else did you change and uh, he's like no other than like maybe having a bit more time at home and and maybe not in the car and, and maybe a little bit less uh, stressed. Um, yeah, it was largely the strength training in that instance. Um, and I know it's like just one case and it's one individual. Um, but then I also had an experience a couple of years ago with a runner that was chronically rehabbing and chronically injured, always tight through her ITBs and always on the roller. So every day mm. on the foam roller, on the spiky ball. And then she just got really she just uh, said oh, i've had enough i'm going to do some strength training let's see if this works <laughs> and results. She do- yeah she doesn't she doesn't use the roller anymore like it's um been really amazing to see that she just doesn't use it she doesn't need it she doesn't get tight in those spots anymore um yeah yeah, yeah absolutely and there's there's also the um the benefit of so if you're doing resistance training over a decent range you've got that elongation of tissue as well so you know static stretching versus inverted commas dynamic stuff um, yeah so yeah i think it's it, i think those are really nice examples really nice examples and, and i think there's a real fear in the endurance community generally that it's going to conflict with what they are trying to achieve and in actual fact if you do it properly it can not conflict it can actually do the opposite it can really enhance and a lot of the people that i see who are um triathletes or uh, runners, you know, the endurance um, athletes that I see don't strength train. So they haven't got a basis of strength training uh, to go from. So it can really make a difference, you know, in terms of, um, again, similarly, chronically injured. um, And what happens generally, you know, you've got a, this is a, a classic thing, you probably see this all the time as well. You've got uh, somebody that comes to you that is maybe a little bit older, so like 30s, early 40s, possibly possibly even 50s, depending on how lucky they've been with an injury. Yeah. Um, and, they, and they've survived their running or, or endurance career by you know, just doing what they've done. They've done their endurance training and it's all worked out, but then they've had one incident of injury and usually that would occur kind of late 30s, early 40s where there's been a difference. I've had a period of time out of training. Um, Having never done strength training before, they get back to doing their endurance work and they continue to break down because they, you know, they they go back. They don't consider that um, proper strength training as as an intervention that they've ever done before. And they've already, you know, had an injury previously in their maybe in their twenties. They didn't need to do it, but as we get older, obviously we we decondition, and um, in terms of the, you know the, the sarcopenic effect, and particularly if you're endurance focused, then that strength reserve, that fuel tank, is always going to be slightly you know decreasing or leaking a little bit. So we need to really make a concerted a concerted effort as we get older to strength train. Um, particularly in much older populations, it should absolutely be a priority. Um, so you see that these endurance athletes then continue to break down because I think the, the strength capacity, so the capacity of the tissue, so that's including the non-contractile tissues as well and the, you know, the 
the tendons, they, they haven't had that intense loading um, to rehabilitate. So they've just been functioning okay prior to injury. Something peculiar happened. They had a period of time out. They've deconditioned to a level that now is no longer to enable to uh, that no longer able to support the the physical demands that they're, they're putting on their body doing the the prolonged endurance training. Yeah, uh, yeah. You, you must see that as well. Oh yeah, yeah, all the time. And um, yeah, just like you mentioned, um, sarcopenia and um, and how like um, yeah, gradually as we're getting older, I suppose our hormones are changing, and and then we're losing muscle mass. And I think um, uh, we all remember what we were doing. And um, I, I think it's hard to make that change in running training. And um, uh, But I've seen like huge success in, in the older runner dropping a run or two and adding strength training. So reducing the run volume, but in, in, in trying to do something to maintain their strength capacity. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. a great, great way of, of, I suppose, negotiating with your athlete, isn't it? That, you know... We're not going to take away <laughs> what you're doing, you know, the, the amount of activity you're doing. But what we would like to do is negotiate with you to put in a, a strength session or two uh, instead of this continued endurance such that you can support your, you know, your, your running quality uh, for a longer period of time. So, yeah, that's a great strategy. With um, scheduling, um, yeah. I get a lot of people asking me um, what's the right way to schedule the strength training, especially they're probably listening to this and then hearing, oh, you know, three sets of five um, reps to failure. And that sounds, sounds, um, you know, like it's going to um, be hard. And then they're like, how can I schedule this in to my week when running training's already going to be quite hard? Um, Claire, mm -hmm. what do you suggest in terms of um, scheduling strength training? That's a, another great question. There's, there's several potential answers for that. Yeah. So if we come at it from, um, let's start with almost like an elite athlete or an athlete with a performance goal in goal in mind, which bear in mind with the COVID situation, yeah. <laughs> maybe lots of potential goals, but maybe none that we can really nail down yeah. uh, at the moment. But let's just say we're in, in kind of normal, inverted commas, times where we've got uh, a race competition uh, calendar. And um, there's this concept of, of periodization. So um, for those of you interested on, on that, I've, I've written several articles on, on my blog on periodization and how to approach it. But if you think about what your aiming to achieve in that particular, let's go with a year. If you're that planned and you're that regimented and you really are performance focused, you should be building up a training program from your running perspective to peak at that particular competition that you want to, to excel at. And then what you do is you kind of block your, your training uh, into, into cycles, if you like, um, to enable you to train hard, have a bit of time off or reduce training volume to adapt and then go again and that kind of periodization. Um, and the same works for, for strength training. Now, what we want to avoid in that really um, performance focus group is this conflict and um, there's a potential for an interference effect whereby if we train maximally for strength and maximally for endurance, um, in 
very close proximity to each other, then there is the potential that there's an interference effect and you don't get the benefits, um, particularly, usually strength that, that uh, suffers, but it can be uh, high-intensity endurance uh, performance that can suffer as well. But for most people, um, that's not really going to be a consideration. Um, it won't be a, a worry. But if again, if we come back to that performance goal of uh, you know you're working through a year, then you'd cycle where you'd do the heavy endurance training for adaptation and then heavy strength training uh, for adaptation and enable the um, recovery from each. So it, it'll be um, a cyclical thing, if you like. And then it'll just be, um, you know, as you're tapering, maybe you just do a maintenance strength session in the, the weeks leading up to your, your race. Um, just as, you know, I'm sure your runners are familiar with periodization and tapering for endurance performance. It's, it's a similar approach for strength. And then maybe you, you kind of, uh, you can have a, a two, three, four weeks off potentially on your strength training, depending what your performance calendar is going to be. But what we have done is put a lot of groundwork in, a lot of foundation and strength that you can draw from in your performance um, thereafter. Yep. Now, if you're um, a recreational runner, if you take the other end of the continuum, you love running, you've maybe got some... Uh, performance goals, you want to reduce your 5k time, your 10k time, um, then, and, and you have got no real, um, I wouldn't say structure, but you've got no real desire to put in a plan, periodized approach over several months, yep. then you're kind of looking at how do you put it into your week. Yeah. Um, so that's the other end of the continuum. So what I'd say there was just make sure there's enough time for uh, recovery to occur before you then do the next type of, of really heavy uh, exercise. So that might look like, so for you know, somebody who never resistance trained before, they're likely to get sore, that DOMS feeling that you peaks generally a day to two days after heavy uh, particularly eccentric uh, resistance training. Um, so it would be an a, approach where you'd, you know, progressive approach. So likewise, you, you just wouldn't, having never run before, you wouldn't go out and try hammer a fast 5K as yeah. <laughs> you, you build up to it. So similarly to uh, a strength training intervention, just get into lifting something and then you start to structure it so that maybe in a couple of weeks' time you are lifting three to five rep max on probably machines if you've never lifted before so to avoid some of the technicalities of lifting with bars and dumbbells and stuff until you're comfortable. Um, and that, you, you know, you might want to do that once, twice a week. And when you're into full kind of strength training mode, you could maybe even go up to three times a week in a, in a block uh, once you're habituated to it. But um I'm often asked how how to separate and how to do it, you yeah. know, your endurance and strength training. And then you've got to layer on top of all of this life. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> when can you fit it in? Yeah. So some, you know, for that recreational runner, some is going to be better than, than none, absolutely. Yep. So if it's a case of just getting in and it happens to be that you have to do it in the morning and then you go out for a run in the evening, that's on, on the grand scheme of things, uh, I think it would be much more beneficial than doing none at all. Yeah, You might feel a little bit sluggish on that, that next run, 
um, but the adaptation hopefully will, will still occur. Um, if you've got a little bit more flexibility, then you can separate them by days and maybe have a day in between, or you have a recovery run the day after you've done some strength training. So you, you haven't got a real performance goal or a real time trial or something that you're really chasing that next day. Um, and maybe have the, then the following day, you're doing a, your, um, I don't know, performance-related uh, endurance adaptation uh, session. And then the next day, maybe you're doing your, your strength training, you know, whatever you can fit into your schedule. But as best as possible, try and separate it out. So you don't go into the gym and absolutely hammer yourself and then do a run. If you yep. can avoid that or the other way around, um, if you can avoid that, then that's probably better. Um, if you can't, then, well, maybe you can block your training so if you can only get into the gym when it's open of course yeah. <laughs> that's, that's all, this is all like kind of uh, a moot point at the minute for some people isn't it because can yeah. we generate that overload that's an entirely different question um but if you can only get into the gym once a week i'd say just forget your running on that you know if you're not doing uh, you don't have to do a treadmill session i'll go run back home focus on quality strength work and if you can do that a couple of times a week, that's going to be of real benefit. And if you, you know, if you want to block periodize that, almost do a month of it or six weeks of it, and then drop it down to one session, and you bring back in, like you were saying before uh, about managing your older athletes, then bring back in your increased running volume and go yep. through that kind of cycle. There's yep. loads of different ways that you can approach it. It's just to try and make sure, as best as possible that you're getting the recovery time and adaptation and there's not that conflict on in endurance performance. But bottom line is getting stronger will enhance your performance. It'll make you feel better. And you'll probably, if you've got any aches and pains, if you're an older runner, you've got these stiff knees, it's likely to, to um, make you feel better as well from that perspective. Nice. With that interference effect that you mentioned um, when the gym is too close to your your endurance or running training um if you had to do it on the same day how close would you go and um like what what would you recommend ideally yeah again yeah. another another good question um i was really put on the spot with this when i, I went to belgium um about just over a year ago and um there were <laughs> the, the physios for what then was the the bmc pro Exactly, oh. Tour de France team oh. asking me that very same question. I was oh. like, okay, <laughs> uh, like, yeah, um, yeah. And they're talking a matter of, you know, can we do minutes? Can we do hours? You know, that's yeah. the entire focus of you know just enhancing uh, cycling performance um, and considering uh, injuries as well. Yeah, um, but from a slightly less elite. Uh, I suppose perspective it's um i would what first of all what's the goal of the session is it to develop strength because i think you need to have that in mind so you're going to go to you know the as i say the gym or you, you you have the goal of the session in mind is it that you want to get stronger therefore you prioritize strength uh and i do that first so that would be your first session. So you're maximizing, you know, the, the 
effort you can put in, the load that you can lift. And then, as I said, if you have to do a run afterwards, then you have to do a run afterwards. But I just question the effectiveness of, of doing that rather than splitting it. So at least, you know, do it in the evening or indeed maybe do it at least 24 hours later if it's a performance goal that you're trying to achieve. You know, if you're really trying to achieve that endurance adaptation or high intensity endurance, whatever it is that you're aiming for in the in the running, try split them as much as possible um, by, you know, as I said, morning to evening. So if it's a case you're going to work, let's face it, most of us do, maybe you have a gym session in the morning and then maybe you run uh, at a home in the evening or you do your run on an evening um, afterwards. So um, I think that's something that's that's manageable. Um, and that run potentially is, is not going to be something that you're really, you know, uh, aiming for times and, and, and distance. It's just a, a bit more of a, a recovery run or something that's less pressured and, and block, you know, your... your higher intensity endurance, you really your performance uh, sessions a bit later um, or more further spread apart from, from your strength sessions. And it might be, you know, you do a block of strength training where you're doing two to three sessions a week and you might do that for six weeks. Then you might just drop down to one and you focus more on your, your endurance and your performance of, of in running, but just maintaining the gains that you've 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 made so i think one session of quality lifting a week and particularly doing compound exercises where you're able to um use multiple muscle groups and, and joints that there's a really good in, in maintaining the strength that you've uh developed in a multitude of muscle groups yeah um, so i don't think there's a hard and fast answer because we're dealing with everyday life as well yeah. um but it's it's how it fits What's your goal? First of all, that's the question you've got to ask yourself. Is there something that you're chasing? And then try and work backwards from that to optimize your strength and then draw from that strength on your endurance performance thereafter. And then you periodize like that. Yeah. Uh, if it's just something that you're, you're, you're keen on running and you've got nothing that you're really chasing, try and in incorporate a, a strength session, two strength sessions in a week into into your everyday training and if you can split them do because you'll probably feel a bit better um and it'll probably enable your adaptations in both aspects to to be a bit more optimized nice yeah that's fantastic um this is a, a bit of a tricky one but what are the three of the most common mistakes you see in strength training oh yeah. <clears throat> uh well one is not understanding what strength training is, and I'm not apportioning blame here uh, at all. So yep. doing, you know, that we see a lot in in gym settings where people are given a program and it's got 10 to 12 reps on it. Now, I've got a question mark after that 10 to 12 reps. Why are people stopping at 12? So, you know, what is what's the aim of the program? Um, so in that instance, it's probably not strength training. Um, it's just, it's, it's generic. I think we can do a lot better for people. Um, but the intensity at which you're working at um, needs to be defined and honed. And that's why I said, if you're working to a repetition's maximum principle, you don't need to go away and work out what your one rep max is, then do a calculation on percentages and then work out what that kilogram weight is. And then, you know, over time, recalculate, you know, it just gives you a, a, a 
quick way of being able to relativize intensity. So I think one is not working at a specified intensity. Two, not working at the optimal intensity. So we want to lift heavy and we want to do a few repetitions. And that might be something like 25 to 45 repetitions per muscle per, per week or per muscle group per week. Um, if we try to assimilate all the best quality evidence in the literature and give that as a, a prescription, then on my courses, that's what, what basically I've, I've done for people. And at that intensity, at five rep max, that's probably what you're working it out to be. Those higher intensity uh, or those more resistance trained individuals, you probably want a bit more than that, but we're talking about endurance people here. So that, that will get you some good gains. Yeah. Um, so we've got, have an intensity, have the right intensity. Um, and then what's your third thing? Uh, quite a few. <laughs> I think the other thing is, the other thing is that I'm really passionate about is, is don't treat older people differently. Yeah. As in, there's a real fear, whether they're old athletes, older athletes, or whether they're um, older people that, that need to be robust and try and not fall over or reduce the consequences of falls or have a good quality of life. Let's not treat them differently. Um, because they're old, it doesn't mean we reduce intensity. In actual fact, I think there's even more need to focus on making sure we get that high intensity right for them. And remember, it's, it's relative to them. So we're not asking a, an old, a person who in their 70s um, to lift exactly the same weight as somebody who's in their you know, mid-20s who's an athlete. It's relative to them. And that's why that repetition's maximum is so good because they can judge it for themselves with a little bit of practice, a little bit of guidance and training. So, you know, the, there's a real need because of the sarcopenic effects as we get older, you know, kind of end 40s, 50s, depending on what, what literature you read, we lose somewhere like one, two, three percent of muscle quality, volume and strength per year if we do nothing about it. And that really translates into um, quality of life. So we know it's related to pain and also quantity of life, too. So that we know that um, being weak correlates with all cause mortality. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, so there's a real need to focus and change our mindset on just because people are old, we don't, you know, they're frail, let's treat them differently and offer them something that's substandard. I think you could almost approach that's, that's unethical. We, we need to focus on that high-intensity uh, strength training. And there's plenty of studies that have shown that it's efficacious, that it's safe, and it's got tremendous benefits. So I don't know if um, you're familiar with one example would be the Liftmore trial. Uh, you okay. guys in, you know, the, the, the profs in, in Australia, <clears throat> got the osteoporotic women and then men, lifting their, you know, doing deadlifts, yeah. doing military press. It's fantastic. You know, these are randomized control trials with with um, oodles of evidence. So, yeah, um, yeah I mean, I, I, I was probably, something. I'm probably guilty of, of um, all those mistakes over time um, and um, probably guilty of giving patients um, not enough load and intensity to, to really push their strength. Um, uh, and then also... I reckon when I first started as a physio, I was um, scared I was going to break more of the older 
patients that I treated. So um, it's definitely like it's um, like I, I like I've seen um, over and over the benefit of it um, now. Um, but it's definitely like easy sort of misconceptions and, and easy to see how people can um, think that way. Yeah. yeah, of course. I, I, I'm, and I'm not having, uh, you know, as I said, I'm not blaming or, or I'm not having to go at people. It's, it's completely understandable because also you think from a therapy perspective, you're dealing with people that are in pain or got got issues, uh, clinical restrictions. So there's a lot going on. It's not your healthy, fit, asymptomatic population. So you don't want to break people. You don't want to yeah. flare them up. Yeah. But it's, it's finding that way of adapting exercise to maintain that specificity, that um, intensity, but without causing that um, flare-up of, of symptoms. And again, that's something that, that I, I teach on in my courses that, that hopefully gives you a few extra tools to put in your toolbox to enable that to happen. So if you're a runner and you're trying to do, you know, you've got maybe a, a sore knee that's maybe a little bit, osteophritic or you know, you've been told it's horribly you know that wear and tear that we always hate that, that you know forget about that just go with your symptoms if it's difficult to do a, a full range of motion leg extension at three to five rep max change the way in which you do the exercise so keep the intensity the same and and limit the range so don't go for full range avoid that painful part of the movement and just get some strength in the the uh, the range that you can manage and actually, it'll probably give you some cross-transfer effects to, to other joint positions as well. So there's there's lots of ways we can approach this problem without actually having meltdown and, and panic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've heard you talk about the th three pillars of, of strength and conditioning. Um, you talked about um, specificity, overload, and progression. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I, th I think... Um, yeah, the, 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 you just talked about specificity really there in terms of strength training, that makes sure the dose is right. Um, but then I often feel like um, a lot of us fall into the trap of just doing the same routine over and over and, and maybe not um, not pushing ourselves as well um, in terms of progressing and, um, and yeah, overloading. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we're, we're human and... and um you know, we kind of get used to things, don't we? So, you know, that's what we've done, what we've always done. And it's kind of, yeah, it's, it's worked for us. And uh, But, you know, if we, and that might be entirely appropriate if you're maintaining, but if we're, you know, if we've got other things into the mix like injury, if we've got a performance goal in mind, or indeed, unfortunately, if our physiology is working against us or trying to, if we're in an older category where our, our muscle quality potentially is reducing, we need to rethink what we've always done uh, to make sure if we've got some goals in mind um, that we can maintain those goals and that might just be living an active life being able to walk on unstable ground navigate styles and take your dog for a walk um or play with your grandkids and stuff like that through to you know getting your uh, a world record for your age group at, at 60 on a 400 meter run or whatever that that might be um as we age you know that's another reason for, for thinking about um that progressive element what we need to do just to, to change it up a little bit to keep challenging ourselves yeah and then like on that like so if someone is trying to progress their strength training um for performance um uh how is power and rate of force development different to strength 
Yeah, okay. So um, rate of force developments. If you if you imagine uh, like a, a curve so that goes, if we're measuring strength, for example, as I said, on a, on a machine, and you get somebody to push as hard as they can against something, and it, um, it doesn't move, but it records how much force uh, you're producing. And what you'll see is like a... a from a, a zero point, there'll be a line that goes up to a maximal point, and then it, as they let the force off, it'll come back down. So if you imagine that kind of curve, like an inverted U, an upside-down U, or an N, whatever yeah. I want to call it, <laughs> but not a capital N, because that would be weird. <laughs> um, so um, rate of force development is basically the steepness of that curve, so how quickly you can produce force. And a lot of this is related to the neurophysiology, um, certainly the early part of that curve, which is, again, we think really important in injury avoidance. So the produ production of a meaningful level of force very, very quickly to dynamically stabilize a joint and or um, performance tasks, so like sprinting and jumping, that kind of thing. That is a critical component of power. So if we think about measuring power, it's generally on more of a gross level, like a vertical jump or a, a short sprint um, for time over a set number of distance. It's, it's that ability to basically rapidly produce force. And the more force you can produce, the more rapidly, the, in theory, the better it translates to performance, as long as you can control it and you're skillful enough. Yep, yep. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, so... That's different to the maximal contractile force a single muscle can, can generate. However, if you don't have enough force to start with, it doesn't matter how quickly you can produce it because um, you'll, you'll not execute the performance you want to execute. So um, an example of that would be that, that older person stepping up out of the chair and then tripping over. Now, to avoid a fall, that person needs to produce quite a lot of force in the, the lower limb musculature and probably the core as well to right their posture and avoid a fall. Now, if you approach rehabilitation um, and conditioning from just a power perspective, because power is important, you can argue at me and I'll agree with you, rapid production of force very quickly is really important in that situation, absolutely is. But if you only um, train for, for uh, power production, you're not topping up as much as possible that fuel tank. So if they haven't got enough force to draw from, it's a moot point how quickly you can produce because they're probably going to fall over anyway. Yep. So that's another way in which you can kind of start to periodize your performance uh, as well. So let's make sure that you've got a good strength basis to start with. Then you can start to execute power uh, training. Yep. And nicely, um, because there's a shared physiologic um, determinant, if you like, of strength and power, you will see that you naturally will develop some power by doing maximal strength training. So if we think about recruitment of fast twitch units, with synchrony of firing and central drive to the musculature, a lot of that is um, describes uh, rate of force development performance as well. So we need a fast production of, of force, which comes from that fast twitch capacity in the musculature. It's when then you want to start to make that performance related and express that force in a slightly different way when we can start to, I think, from a performance perspective, look at other ways of training power. 
So for uh, those really highly accomplished um, athletes, you might see them doing weightlifting derivatives. So like a mid-thigh rack pull or parts of explosive Olympic lifts. Not all of it. You don't need the, the, the catch phase and the, the additional phases. What you want is production of high levels of force or lifting heavy stuff off the ground really quickly, but just to a certain point. Um, and then there's the other uh, type of power uh, performance uh, trainings like the plyometrics. And um, it might be sprints and change of directions with jumping. And that's expressing and uh, learning to express, if you like, that capacity that you've built up in a functionally meaningful way. So how you then start to translate that to performance, you've got you know quite a lot of options depending what that is. But <clears throat> mindful that your power is likely to be benefited by doing heavy resistance training anyway. Yeah, that's really cool. So would you say the doing the sprint training or the um, like that's um, learning how to coordinate the power? Um, yeah, that's a good way yeah. of putting it, actually. Yeah, yeah. So you'll find that um, doing resistance training will translate. So if you if you've got runners, you know, if you listen to this and you're a runner and you do sprint training as a part of your, um, and you do speed sessions as a, as a part of your normal program, you'll probably find you get quicker yep. um, having done that strength training because of the shared physiology between strength and power. And then they're using it and then expressing it in that, that uh, functional way. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Um, and then I heard you, uh, like you mentioned compound um, uh, uh, strength training and um, before, um, where does this fit in, like compared to isolated strength training, where, say, you just um, strengthening one muscle, say, at a time? Uh, like, um, how would you, um, like, is it is it just a case by case, um, an individualized thing, um, based on the runner and their needs and their goals, or um, do you often sort of um, maybe start with isolated strength training and then sort of um, progress to compound strength training or yeah, how do you offer Yeah, <clears throat> again, another another good question. I think probably you're right there in, in that it's a, an individualized approach. If you've got somebody who is used to being in the gym and they've just been perhaps doing something that you'd like to change, so they've been doing, let's say, I don't know, squats and deadlifts, and they're quite comfortable with that, but they've been doing 10 reps uh, and 12 reps, maybe, let's say, to failure, um, you know that they've already got a, a technical ability to be able to do that um, because although it looks simple squatting and deadlifting is quite is quite a technical thing and particularly a squat you turn yourself into an inverted pendulum so if you put suddenly a weight on there that equates to a five rep max it's it's, it's a challenge to stay stable and also uh, get back up from a very deep squat position so it'll be a, a progressive approach so it might be if somebody's never done any before Put them in a machine if they can. Uh, I love leg extension machines, hamstring curl machines, leg presses, because they are uh, an opportunity to really load up, but load up safely. So there's there's always a way to bail out of that exercise without any catastrophe occurring. Um, and then the compound lifts, like I was saying, the leg press actually is one, uh, but also you think about squats, you think about deadlifts, uh, if upper body chest press so we're, we're talking a lot about lower limb but you know I'd, I'd say incorporate upper limb as well for, for your runner as well you use the upper, upper limb to 
for limbs to propel propel yourself. Yep. Uh, and then the uh, the rest of the the core, if it is core, but yeah, know, yeah. The, the middle <laughs> segment, however you want to label it. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, you've got bench press, uh, you've got dumbbells, um, and then other things for the lower limb lunges, etc. So yeah. I, I would, if never nobody's ever started, uh, sorry, nobody's ever done this before, I would start with those isolation exercises just to bay for one, feel more comfortable. Yeah. And um, I do this with the, the OA knee patients that I see. So I run a 12-week program for them and get them up to three to five rep max lifting, some of which will be ending on deadlifts if they've never been uh, to a gym before. Maybe not quite at the, the five rep max, but just as an indication. It's a great win. They absolutely love it. They think, you know, that would walking into a gym the first time, they, that's the scariest thing they've yeah. ever yeah, and then they've they've lifted uh, you know the, the barbell off the floor with some weight on it. It's just hugely empowering. For them. Yeah, but yeah. yeah, they they start with uh, like extensions and hamstring curls and a and leg press to a, a comfortable range, um, and if that, that might be what you start with uh, in terms of runners um, who've never done it before. Uh, likewise, upper body stuff, you know, sit in a machine. And start then play around with some dumbbells. Uh, if you've never done them before, they can be quite difficult to, to coordinate. So start with a, a lower weight. That's, that don't suddenly jump into lifting the heaviest thing. Be comfortable and confident with what you're doing. Then progress into some of those compound things. And a, a squat progression could be a you know a leg extension through then to a, um, a Smith machine. Sorry, a leg press then to a Smith machine to then a um, barbell back squat onto a box. So a box squat, so they're not going all the way down. So and then full uh, squat. So there's loads of progressions and or regressions you can in- incorporate into that to um, feel more comp- competent and confident in doing that. And, and as I was saying before, the compound lifts are really good to hit a multitude of muscle groups. Um, so squat being you know all the lower limb glutes lots of stuff you know it can be a really good maintenance exercise rdls are romanian deadlifts again you've got you know the hip and the uh, um your hamstrings are, depending how you're doing it in single double leg there's there's loads of different compound exercises that you can use which means that you can as i said use multiple muscle groups in that that maintenance session if you like um or indeed in your strength training session if you're, if you're competent. But there's loads of different permutations. Bottom line, I think it comes to individuals' experience and, and confidence. Yep. Yeah. Um, Claire, I've just got one more question because I'm wary of the time. And I'm um, so thankful for how much information and um, how valuable um, this chat has been. And I'm sure so many mm. listeners will be so appreciative. Um, but I, th- I think... Um, um, I read that you were part of a study sort of earlier this year um, and um, it was it, it was um, with this really fancy concept which I thought was really interesting called the crossover um, effect where um, you were um, following a few um, uh, patients that had undergone ACL reconstruction I think and um, they were strengthening the non non um, non-operated leg and um, it actually had some kind of crossover strengthening effect. Um, I thought that was a really cool concept and I know I just think it'd be interesting for some people to to hear about that. 
Sure, yeah. no, no worries. So um, that's that paper's under review right now. I've just got that submitted. <laughs> um, so something that I'm really passionate about is that um, translating as much as we can some of the things that we think are simple, uh, basic concepts in the sport performance literature into rehabilitation um, settings, one of which is a cross-education effect. So we've known since probably 1890s, I think, okay. uh, that if you uh, train one limb, there can potentially, if you do it in a, in a correct way, uh, an adaptation and a change in the opposite limb. And a lot of that is due to the fact, or that it's probably all, maybe some hormonal changes, but a lot of that is due to this neurophysiological effect of resistance training. So you remember at the start, you asked me yeah. about what some of the adaptations. Well, it's it's that central drive and the supply to the musculature. Um, so um, in healthy people, uh, so non-injured people, non-resistance trained, if you um, strength train, let's say, one arm, so the biceps of, of your right arm, and you do that in the way that we've described strength training here, so kind of heavy with intent to lift heavy, that kind of thing, you can see up to 50% adaptation in the opposite arm. So if you get a 20% um, change in the trained arm, you might see a 10% change in the untrained arm that's done nothing which yeah. is absolutely remarkable. Yeah. Now, it doesn't happen that it's always 50%, yep. um, but that potential is there. Now, for me, I see that as being really, really useful in therapy settings and settings where there's injury. So you see in musculoskeletal environments, it's usually unilateral injury. So maybe you've got an Achilles tendinopathy, um, or probably better example of that because we need to load Achilles. It would be... Uh, an ACL would be a fracture, something where you you need to immobilize or reduce the activity in one limb. So rather than let it just waste away, why don't we use this cross-education, cross-transfer effect uh, to try and mitigate the losses that we see? So typically after a, a, an ACL injury, so the anterior cruciate ligament, really important ligament in the knee, um, if uh, So after surgery, we see typically a 30% reduction in quadriceps strength around about 10 weeks after. So there's a, there's a huge drop-off in strength associated with, um, well, the surgical insult, the inflammation, you know, the, the, the fusion, and uh, the reduced, you know, the, clinic, the need clinically to reduce um, the loading on that, that tissue and the tissues in the knee. What we did was apply a strength training program two weeks after surgery on the non-operative limb. So they, these guys were doing uh, three to five rep max of leg extensions, hamstring curl and leg press just on the non-operative limb. And there's a control group as well who did some placebo upper limb stretching. Um, and everybody followed the same uh, ACL rehabilitation program that they would do anyway. And what we saw was um, in the control group who just did the upper limb stretching the, you know, the, and the normal ACL rehab, sure enough, there's a 30% reduction in quadriceps strength at 10 weeks post. In the 
cross-education group, so that group that did a, a time-matched um, intervention on their non-injured leg, we reduced that by half. So yeah. the loss in strength in the non-operative in the operative leg was half that in compared to the control group. Yeah, which is it's phenomenal, really, and it it it's um, it opens up so many avenues for for, for rehabilitation, for um, potentially accelerating rehab, minimizing losses, and um, you know, certainly in, in those individuals that want to get back to sport quickly, that's a, a good thing that we can do. We've seen this um, done in the, the upper limb as well, where there's been a casting of, uh, of the upper limb. Um, and also in those older populations where, you know, the, the loss in you know, 30% strength could be detrimental to, to its activity, to activities of daily living. So I think it's it's um, it's a fantastic um, part of our physiology that we need to leverage more. I think. Um, yeah. So yeah, and we measured them as well at, at six months post, and I, there was some a little bit of retention. I think there's things that we can put into place to maybe retain better some of those gains. And actually, what we saw as well was that um, the absolute levels of performance were greater in the the cross-education group versus a control group. So something that I know you're familiar with is that we look at limb symmetry index. So how does um, the operative limb compare to the non-operative limb um, uh, to determine whether or not they're ready to get back to activity? But, you know, we need to be cautious in looking at ratio data because what we saw in the, the control group, they had the really good uh, at six months post, they're about 0.89 uh, ratio. So if we're saying a 10% difference, yeah. they're not far off that. However, when you look at their absolute strength performance, it was inferior to the uh, cross-education group, which were probably about, I don't know, 85%. So they might not look as good from a limb symmetry index perspective, but their absolute performance levels were superior and much better. So I personally would rather be stronger yeah. <laughs> um, than... than uh, having weaker but symmetrical performance between legs yeah yeah that's um it's um yeah such a cool phenomenon and um yeah um like i thought it was just a really good point to to finish on because i think a lot of people um yeah aren't aware of it and um yeah i'm so thankful for your time claire um uh like you've got your website www w.getbacktosport.com and there's you know a heap of great blogs and and that's where your courses are uh, but where else can uh, listeners reach out to you if they're um, keen to um, yeah find out more about you sure well, well thanks for inviting me on it's been a great pleasure um, I've loved talking to you and uh, hopefully listeners haven't um, been too bored <laughs> nah. droning on but if you do want to get in touch with me yeah i'm also active on twitter and that's at claire underscore minchel i'm on instagram and facebook under get back to sport and and also uh, on my website getbacktosport.com there's a, a contact me page as well so if you wanted to get in touch uh, that's another way uh, of, uh, of reaching out to me and i happily uh, correspond with all of you <laughs> Thanks so much, Claire. Um, you answered so many um, questions that I struggle to answer um, in the clinic. Um, so, yeah, so, so useful. Thank you. Absolutely my pleasure. Thanks. Nice.